in Iran, women are considered second-class citizens. And what this means is that before the court of law, which is inspired by the Sharia laws, they're regarded as half of a person. Hello, and welcome to the USERV Spotlight Podcast, a podcast series by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each episode, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Scott Wiener, Supervisory Policy Analyst here at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Today, we'll be discussing the ongoing protests in the Islamic Republic of Iran. On September 16th, Iran's morality police arrested 22-year-old Mahsa Amini for wearing improper hijab. The morality police reportedly beat Amini until she suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and had a stroke. Upon learning of her death days later at a hospital in Tehran, Iranians across the country took to the streets in protest of the government's brutal repression. Since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, Iran has mandated the hijab in public spaces for women on religious grounds. These laws have been met since that time by peaceful protests, often led by women. Iran's government has put down these protests by force and is actively doing so now. To better untangle this interplay between religious freedom and women's rights in Iran, we're pleased to welcome our guest, Merjan Kapoor-Greenblatt, founder of the Aram Alliance. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute and a member of the Anti-Defamation League's Task Force for Middle East Minorities. Merjan, welcome to USERP Spotlight. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for inviting me. So to start us off, uh, Massa Amini's death was the event that set off these protests, but women have been harassed and arrested for wearing improper hijab for years in Iran, and particularly in the past four months. So how does Iran's government use religion as a pretext for restricting women's religious freedom, and what has that entailed this past year? And what are you hearing from women in Iran with whom you're in touch about their feelings about these restrictions and the current wave of protests? Right. Um, you ask you ask a lot of good questions, and there is a lot in um, in all of this. But to just set um, the stage for what women are enduring in Iran and how the government uses religion as a pretext to uh, impose the hijab on women, um, we should begin with the understanding that the Islamic Republic positions its own interpretation of Islam as the law of the land and it implements heavy penalties for anyone who violates these rules. Um, now, these rules are um, encompass every aspect of, of, of people's lives, but more than anyone, it really controls the women. So over the years, the enforcement of these rules um, and laws have become more and more arbitrary. They have ebbed and flowed with different political waves uh, with the so-called moderates coming to power and the hardliners coming to power. But hijab enforcement has always been a lever of public control, 
when they tighten the lever, um, the pressure builds and we see more acts of civil disobedience. And when they loosen it, the pressure is somewhat released and um, people can try to go about their lives in different ways. Um, but in terms of what happened and what you referenced in the past four months, shortly after Raisi was elected in June, he asserted his leadership by claiming more control over people. And um, what symbol can better represent this level of control than subjugating half of the population, meaning the women, on strict, to, to obey stricter hijab laws? He made a push for the commemoration of the day of hijab and chastity in July, um, which incidentally is um, a day that coincides with a protest that um, Iranian clergy staged about 90 years ago against Reza Shah's push to modernize the country. And he was insisting on um, the transformation from veil into a hat. Um, and uh, Raisi is reclaiming that day and he's, you know, made a big push for that day. And he described his mission of hijab enforcement as a mission to prevent evil. Um, and he refers to anyone who defies the hijab laws as corrupt. Um, and the word that they use actually for corrupt, and we can talk more about that later, is fasid, which means actually something that is rotting from the core and things that rot, we know we associate them with dirt and decomposing and stench. Um, and this is a term that they intentionally use because that is how they want to shame the population. Um, and um, in all of these manipulations of the government, um, there is a sense of, um, you know, the society ends up uh, embodying a sense of insecurity, that life is unpredictable for them and that they are powerless. And after the death of Mahsa Amini, after she was violently struck to the head to the point that she lost her life, um, people really felt this pain to their core because it reminded them of their own vulnerability before this regime and reminded them that they could one day end up in the same destiny as Massa because of the way they choose to dress, because of their expressions on the you know on social media or on paper, because of the way they choose to entertain themselves or any other aspect of life in Iran that is governed and regulated by the regime. So this issue of vulnerability is one that applies to many different groups of people in Iran and, of course, uh, for many religious minority communities as well, including Baha'is, Sunnis, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and non-believers, members of spiritual movements as well. Do women from minority religious communities also face particular challenges vis-a-vis -vis religious freedom? Absolutely. But again, I think we have to understand that life in the Islamic Republic of Iran is difficult and challenging for anyone, regardless of religious affiliation. There are many Shia Muslims, many Sunni Muslims, many devout Muslims who do not believe in imposing religious rules on 
the population. Uh, mainly, they don't believe that hijab should be mandatory or enforced with such precision of uh, dictation of the government. And for sure, they don't want it to be punished with such brutality by the regime agents who consider themselves implementers of God's rules. So these practices are perceived as even un-Islamic or bad for religion. Um, and before we get into how it, how it affects the religious minorities that you referred to, um, it's interesting to point out that um, this sentiment is was respect was reflected. The anti-religion sentiments and the opposition to the sentiments regarding role of religion in government was reflected in an opinion survey that was conducted by a research institute based in the Netherlands and published in 2020. Um, this is the name, Gaman is the name of the research institution. And um, their 2020 research demonstrated that 50% of the population are actually turning away from Islam or religion altogether because in part of these impositions and the forced dictations of religious law onto people. Um, the same research also found that 70% of the population don't believe that the hijab should be mandatory. Now, there, you know, there is a respectable number of the population that believes in modesty rules or, you know, modest attire for themselves, but they don't want the government to impose or punish people because of it. Um, so this is um, a force um that is affecting all the population um islamic and also non-islamic um of faith and this perception of religion and um the desire to see religion as a separate entity from religion there is even desire for um religious minorities many of which are actually indigenous to the country of iran um, people want them to be able to practice their religion freely. Um, there was even a suggestion or, or desire for them to be able to proselytize for their religion in, a, in, in an open way, um, something that the government currently sees as a um, crime uh, similar to national security endangerment, and that can be punishable by prison and, and harsher sentences even. But when it comes to religion, the non-Islamic religions have to abide by these rules, even though their own religions, um, such as Christianity, Zoroastrianism, um, and uh, Baha'i faiths, they, they don't necessarily have any modesty rules uh, of this sort. Even Judaism, they don't have this form of modesty rules, uh, but they still have to abide by these prescriptions of the government. Um, and from the reports that we hear in the, uh, from the country, the more persecuted religious minority groups are even more vigilant about following the religious um, hijab mandate because they don't want to cause so-called trouble for the with the government because if they are arrested and they are imprisoned, the risks to them as individuals and the communities they represent 
are multifold and they want to protect their communities. And for that, they keep their heads down and they um, follow the hijab rules even more stringently and obediently than um, some of their Muslim counterparts. Um, and that's some difficult reality that we have to just process here. People who are um, indigenous to the land of Iran, who um, believe in their religion just as much as they believe in their um, patriotic values and love for their country, but they have to accept this um, forced rule of hijab, this forced imposition on them that literally constricts the bodies in order to stay safe and to protect their communities. And that is the reality that Iran's religious minorities have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So we're really talking about the ways in which the government is interpreting religion in a specific way and sort of enforcing it universally across different populations. I know, uh, Marjan, one of the issues you've worked on really closely are so-called honor killings of women for which uh, murders in Iran are given reduced sentences as opposed to other kinds of homicides. Uh, can you explain a bit what's behind those killings and how the Iranian government's invocation of religion as a basis for these less harsh sentences puts women at risk? Yes, um, Scott. So we know that in Iran, women are considered second-class citizens. And what this means is that before the court of law, which is inspired by the Sharia laws, they're regarded as half of a person. The testimony of a woman is regarded as half of, it, half of its value compared to the testimony of a man. Um, and this categorization of women as less valuable or half human lays a societal groundwork to regard women as less human altogether. And this is a mindset that, um, we, we see perhaps justifies and facilitates a lot of these brutal murders of women and girls that are taking place in Iran um, and a lot of you know daily acts of violence that women are, are experiencing um, because the, we believe that the perpetrators do not feel as badly about their, their, their actions when they are um, uh, exerting violence or um, or, or, or mistreating something that is less humor, human or not human. It's like, you know, um, a, you know, hitting a toy or hitting a robot. Um, we don't feel that bad about it because they're not human and they, um, they, and we don't feel the emotional or empathy, natural empathy that uh, one would feel toward other living human beings. Um, the fact that, by the way, the Islamic laws in Iran don't have any regard for animals, that's a separate conversation. But um, the, the type of perspective that is institutionalized in the Iranian constitution and then carries itself in the home um, where a woman is supposed to feel safe, basically just by nature makes it impossible for women to be fully regarded as an individual worthy of safety and respect because it is not any of that according to the constitution um so 
um, when it comes to uh, you know tort issues, if a woman has been killed um, by a male perpetrator, um, there her blood is worth half of a man's blood and um there, there there was not enough justice there is half a level of justice for her and um in many cases actually when honor killings happen in iran these cases are not even prosecuted um fathers um of the persons in charge um the fathers of the deceased are often the ones who can claim um to bring the perpetrator to justice but ironically fathers themselves are often the perpetrators of these crimes um, and mothers are sometimes accomplices and they will not um you know members of the family are hesitant oftentimes about prosecuting the perpetrators because oftentimes uh, these male perpetrators are breadwinners of the family and if they end up in jail the family will have to go hungry and so they're willing to accept the sacrifice of um, the death of the female relative um, in order to um, you know help the rest of the family survive um, and um, I just have to say because this uh, perception of women as less human um, has manifested itself in such inhumane and such brutal ways and um, since at Stop Femicide Iran we have been reviewing these cases and uh, digging deep into the methods of murder that men are choosing and what they do with the bodies and how they treat the bodies and why they kill the person um, it is abhorrent. Uh, this is not something that people would do if they had respect for women. This level of brutality, of barbarity, is not something that would be tolerated or, or even <sighs> tolerated if, if there was a level of respect and appreciation for, for women. So now the Iranian government can say things about oh we honor women we honor girls we, we 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 impose hijab because we respect women so much no this is not the case if they respected women they would allow women to be free they would begin to express the respect for women by granting them full citizenship by regarding them as equal before the law but sadly this is not happening and this is why these acts of murder are happening and femicide in iran is just part of this continuum of persecution and repression. It begins with the first and simplest decision of life, coming beginning with life as second-class citizens, and it ends with the end of life that is often taken away by the, in the hands of a man who will never see justice for the crimes. So on this topic of uh, state facilitated violence on the grounds of religion, Iran is one of a handful of countries that execute LGBTQI people on the basis of religion. And two such women, Zahra Sadiqi Hamdami and Elham Chubdar, were sentenced to death last month on the religiously grounded charges of corruption on earth, Fawcett, as you mentioned before, 
through promoting homosexuality and promoting Christianity. So can you talk a little bit about the religious basis of this charge corruption on earth and more broadly how Iran's government uses religion to restrict the rights of lesbian, bi, and trans women? Um, absolutely. So um, basically we have seen the term corruption on earth used for um, to, to justify the death sentence for anyone um, in the country that seems like a burden or a challenge to the religious government of Iran. Um, we have seen it applied to um, the foreign, the, the, the former minister of education um, um, who um, who worked during the Shah and um, she was one of the most respected ministers in the entire country's history, but um, because she was female and because she was promoting um, progressive education for women, she was considered as Mofsed of Al-Ars, corrupt on earth, and she was uh, unceremoniously hanged. And um, so I, I, I don't think that there is an Islamic justification that is so arbitrary that um, would cause innocent people, regardless of their beliefs or actions, to be slapped with this label and um, driven to the driven to the um, noose uh, with a noose around their neck for any reason. Um, but it is, again, it's an arbitrary uh, implementation of their religious interpretation that the Islamic Republic is uh, exhibiting. Um, in the case of um, the two women that you named, um, Zahra Sadiri Hamadani and Elham Chubdar, um, uh, these women have been seen on their um, uh, Instagram pages, you know, uh, in, in case of Zahra Hamidani with a, with this cross above her neck. And that's probably enough for the Islamic Republic to consider this religious proselytizing or, um, or um, act of um, national, you know, acting against national security, um, because probably they're interpreting this as an act of you know re religious uh, publicity and um we we know how they regard that in the islamic republic of iran um but it, it in order to um really get a strong conviction uh, to convict these two women to to the death death penalty to receive the death penalty they had to add to their charges and a lot of these charges are fabricated. They are saying that these women were involved in sex trafficking of these women through their beauty parlor. Um, and they have fabricated some outrageous um, allegations against these, these two individuals, um, whereas they probably just were, you know, living their lives, being who they are, and um, trying to live openly about um, how, what they believe and how they want to live um, on social media, just the same way that um, people of all sexual orientations and all kinds of gravitations around the world, especially young people around the world are, um, are living. 
um, on a day-to-day -day basis in the in the world. But um, again, as part of the practice of their um, of uh, arbitrary law and enforcement in their judicial system, they are making this excuse, and these two women are facing the death penalty. Now, it is, I'm heartened that uh, both the UN and Amnesty International have demanded an immediate um, halt to this um, uh, execution order, and they are calling for the immediate uh, release of these individuals. Um, and we are hoping that not just in the case of Zahra, um, um, Zahra and um, uh, Ms. Troopdar, but um, that in the case of all, all of the men and women in Iran who are in jail because of their beliefs or their lifestyle, that there would be freedom and liberation for all of them. So we've addressed a wide range of religious freedom issues in Iran. And to conclude, I'd like, it, I'd like to take us back to the protests that are ongoing now where women are opposing this religiously grounded policy of mandatory hijab. Um, so what are Iranian women, if anything, asking the United States government to do? And are there other steps the US government can take to assist Iranians who are seeking greater religious freedom? Yes. Um, so basically, um, the protests in Iran have reached a critical moment. Um, the, we have, um, we're over two weeks of protests in Iran. Um, they are, uh, men and women are taking part in unprecedented countrywide levels of um, protest and, um, and revolutionary levels of engagement and activism in Iran, asking for life, freedom, and life. I'm sorry, Zan Zendegi Azadi, woman, life, and freedom. And um, they are taken to the streets um, and they are basically, in simplest words, they are asking for a secular life where they can be free and respected, whether they want to wear the hijab or whether they don't want to wear the hijab, they want to be free and they don't want the government to dictate their destiny to them. So what um, are they asking for and how can we be of help? for them as they are literally risking their lives, facing batons and bullets, um, facing um, tear gas and um, pushing and pulling, um, uh, grabbing, beating by the regime officials in what they're doing. And let me just actually open a footnote here because um, some people in the government of Iran or their apologists abroad are saying that, well, they're using uh, rubber bullets or they're using uh, toy bullets um, to disseminate some of these, um, these protesters. But if you just take a quick glance at social media, you see bodies, uh, photographs of bodies with dozens of small bullets um, across the bodies, bruises, bloody, and, and a lot of these wounded protesters are afraid of going to the hospitals and seeking professional treatment because they're 
they're afraid that the government um, uh, uh, infiltrators in the hospitals would, would actually arrest them and take them to jail. Um, they're afraid of, um, of, of uh, and, and, and many of these, uh, um, these individuals are actually um, dying at home and they're uh, really going through excruciating pain um, while, um, while they are um, recovering from, um, from, from the wounds that they incurred during the protest. And they're afraid of even getting in the ambulances. Um, but going back to what we can do to support these uh, women and, and the Iranian people all together, one is um, to sign Amnesty International's and protest uh, bloodshed um, petition, which calls for um, um, investigating the um, brutal force that the Iranian regime is imposing on the people and also ask them to, um, to, to, to halt their violence against the protesters. Um, um, also, people can um, ask the UN, call the UN and ask them to um, reconsider the inclusion of the Islamic Republic of uh, Iran in um, the UN Commission for Status of Women. Um, and, um, um, you know, we can also increase the internet access for women and, and, and men who are protesting in Iran. Um, the internet is a pipeline of information that comes into the country and comes out of the country. And much of the videos that we have seen has been available thanks to the availability of the internet. And then also we really need the American president to um, stand before the lectern and speak to the Iranian people and let them know that he is on their side. It is crucially important for President Biden to finally break his silence and to speak in support of the freedom-loving, democracy-loving people of Iran and show his support for them. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Marjan Kapoor Greenblatt for sharing her insights with us. You can find USERF's reporting and full set of recommendations for U.S. policy on Iran at our website, www.userf.gov. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit userf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.